Open your Bibles with me, if you would, or your device, <laughs> to the book of Romans, chapter 14. Romans 14. Remember, as we get rolling here, <clears throat> that, uh, as I mention often, that chapter breaks are not in the original language. This is a letter, and it's, it's written to flow like a letter. And here in the beginning of Romans 14, we do well to remember that because the Apostle Paul has just finished a train of thought, which we looked at in Romans 13 last week regarding hypocrisy. Uh, In it, we looked at what it is to profess one thing and to practice another and uh, dealing with immorality, dealing with uh, talking about the person who is in blatant Hypocrisy, not the person who is a work in progress, as all of us are, but the person who is the same. Well, you know, I've got my version of Christianity, and that's just how it is. You know, God's treating me special somehow. Um, doesn't work that way. So he's writing to the church at Rome. He's admonished them in chapter 13. Uh, in verses 13 and 14, he says, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but, love that word, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So what the Apostle Paul does here is he draws a hard line uh, between living a sinful lifestyle and professing Christ. And we've got to understand that we cannot be engaged in an unrepentant, blatant lifestyle of hypocrisy and profess Christ in any meaningful way. It it doesn't work that way. So now, as Paul gets into what we call chapter 14, as he continues, he's going to move into an area where the lines aren't so hard. (laughs) As a matter of fact, uh, the lines here actually are quite blurry and they are that on purpose. We have blurry lines on a lot of things as Christians. Great instruction here. Folks, there is, this is so practical and this, there is such good instruction here. I just invite you. I I look at this as like a smorgasbord. Take what fits. Apply it to your life. And, And I guarantee you, based on the word of God, your life, your walk with Christ will be enriched. So, Also, a mild warning. These are things that if we have a a wrong mindset over them, they may cause us to look at others and think that they're living hypocritically when they're not. So keep in mind, as we move from chapter 13 and the hard lines that we see there, uh, that as we get into chapter 14, (laughs) and the fact that these lines get noticeably fuzzier, all right? Uh, very important. Verse 1, he says, Receive the one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. So he says doubtful things. The new or the King James, this is in the New King James that I'm reading. The King James Version renders this word disputations. Okay, that's a, that's a classic King James word. Don't get into disputations. We don't use that much. But the New American Standard renders this. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not to have quarrels over opinions. Straight up. That's what he's saying. So what Paul is doing here, he pivots and looks at this whole thing from another angle. And while it's true that 
healthy, sober-minded Christians want to avoid hypocrisy in their lives, what about where we possess differing tastes, differing opinions, differences in practice in areas, which are not rooted. Now, I want to make sure that I want to make this clear. In chapter 13, he talks about areas that are rooted in immorality, that blatant hypocrisy that I'm talking about. In chapter 14, he's talking about what about these areas where we're different, where we have different ideas, different tastes, different practices, but they're not rooted in the biblical standard of morality, and they're not rooted in the major doctrines of the faith. Okay, those are where we draw the line on being on having different opinions. If it's a matter of morality, you can't claim this, and some do. Uh, they'll advocate a sinful lifestyle, which the Word of God condemns, and say, "Well, see, I'm just doing what it says here." No, that doesn't apply. It does apply, though, to these disputations, these areas that are really kind of neutral. So. I want you to also notice in this passage, a weak Christian is the one who has unfounded convictions over matters of secondary importance. This is not primary stuff. Again, not major doctrines, but areas that are up for grabs. Uh, in context, the church at Rome, there, I mean, Paul, as he's writing this, he's got people in mind. And there was a large contingent of Jews that had converted to Christianity. We know that from chapter 16 when we look at the list of names there, many Jewish names. And so these people would have been struggling. Now, this whole Christian thing was new in the first century as he's writing this. And they had grown up observing dietary laws and observing the Sabbath day, the Saturday Sabbath, Shabbat. So... As we get into this, in verse 1, there's a Greek word that comes to play in this. It's not the word that's used, but it is a Greek word that describes what's going on uh, when we look at doubtful things or opinions, and that's the word adiophora. Now, you don't have to remember that, but do remember what it means, all right? The, and what the word adiophora means, it means indifferent or neutral things, things that are, as I mentioned, up for grabs. And there are a lot of them in the Christian life. So some denominations and, and most cults are notorious for taking matters of adiaphora and making them into doctrines, uh, asserting that God is somehow displeased when we're not following this or that mandate. And folks, the last couple of years, we know what a mandate is. <laughs> I grew up in a religion where you just plain didn't wear jeans to church let alone stand in the pulpit and preach wearing jeans in church. <laughs> That's part of why I'm a rebel. I, I love the freedom that we have. I love that we don't have a dress code. We're not going to impose a dress code. God looks at the heart. If you want to wear a suit, please do. If you want to come, <laughs> well, we just require clothes. So... <laughs> The point is, is that the list goes on. You know, playing cards or dancing, alcohol, tobacco. And some of these, we've got to be sure that we understand that there are parameters. Uh, dress codes, tattoos, certain kinds of Christian music, Christmas trees. There's a lot. Here's the danger. On the one hand, I can fall into spiritual pride. That's to say that if I'm one of the ones who are doing it, then I'm somehow better off than the ones who aren't. Or if I'm one of the ones who aren't doing it, whatever it is, then I'm somehow better off than the one who is. 
This attitude and mindset are dangerous, divisive, and prideful. Let's work through the chapter here, and hopefully we'll come out the other end, understanding that there is room for our personal convictions. And they are well-founded, very often. And, And yet we can also have room for someone that holds a different opinion. So, like I said, on the one hand, spiritual pride is a deal. But on the other hand, if I'm one of those who has a mature approach to liberty, I can become subject to being condemned by those who do not. And we're going to see that there is equal weight of responsibility here. It's not that the weaker brother has more responsibility or less, not that the stronger brother has more responsibility or less. He combines it. And he says there's an equal weight of responsibility for your own opinion. The point in all of this is this can become a slippery slope in a church. In Matthew 15, uh, Jesus is teaching that defilement comes from within. These are hard issues. Uh, from what he refers to as the commandments of men. In Matthew 8, 15, 8 and 9, he says, These people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me. Note this, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's what religion does, folks. There's no freedom. Like I said, I grew up in a religion where I was bound up. I couldn't even wear a beard, which I got rid of a couple of weeks ago. But the point is, is that was part of what was frowned on. And it was as though God was somehow displeased. And and it's really... It's really kind of sick when you get down to it. So the issues that the uh, Apostle Paul is dealing with here, they're, they're for sure things that have to do with Christian liberty and not license, as we saw at the end of chapter 13. Big distinction that we have to make there. We're not to live licentiously. However, it's never been God's will or his design to hem us in with regulations, the doctrines of men, over indifferent things which are not sin. Verse 2, for one believes that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. So there are a couple of things going on here. As I mentioned, many of the Christians in Rome were Jews who had converted to Christianity uh, and and having been subjected to dietary laws in Judaism, uh, it left them with a question as to what would be permissible. The second thing that's going on here is Paul talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 about meat sacrificed to idols. Much of the meat that was sold in the empire in those days was that which had been previously sacrificed in a pagan temple. And people were being stumbled by it. We'll talk about being stumbled in a bit. But the point in that is, is that there were some who said, no big deal. I'm a Christian. I'm not into idol worship, so that's fair game. (laughs) Pun intended. (laughs) But point is, is that there would also be those whose conscience was, conscience was offended that we're going, oh man, that, that was, that was sacrificed to idol. <laughs> oh, you know, and they would get, they would get pretty jacked up about it. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, if you want to be sure how to, how to deal with that, don't ask. He literally says, don't ask about it. If you want to have a clean conscience, don't ask where the meat came from. And then you're good. And I think that's a really basic, but that's really good advice. So, There are the people that say no big deal. There are those who would say it is a big deal. His point here is that of being considerate towards other people. That's the higher principle. 
There are, in God's word, you see that, that there are principles that are laid out. All right. We're going to look at some principles that are laid out, whether you do or you don't, whether you eat meat sacrificed to idols or you don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. There's an overarching principle. An overarching principle is one that governs the principles that are beneath it. Do you understand what I'm saying? So what we're looking at here are overarching principles that Paul puts forth. The result is we can actually get along with each other being really, really different. We've got to be considerate of the convictions of others. That's his point. If you know that your liberty is a stumbling block, even if you think there may be a possibility that it's a stumbling block, don't do it. Period. We, we have been called to freedom, but our freedom involves responsibility. God's heart, as revealed in these passages, is that that is on you. The ultimate responsibility is on your ability to consider others in exercising your freedom. Because if you don't, you could stumble a brother or a sister with your liberty. Verse 3, he says, Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. So now, when he says that, he says, Don't let him who eats despise the one who doesn't. Oh, look at you. I've got this freedom and you don't. You just don't get it. But the guy that is on the other side of that, well, look at you. You're eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. You see, both sides come into play. And he tackles the issue from both sides here. He, he Don't let the guy who eats despise him who doesn't. Don't let the guy who doesn't judge the one who does. What's the point? The principle of personal freedom can swing in either direction. However, the overarching principle that's in play here is never allow your personal convictions or your liberty or the freedom you experience in Christ to become a stumbling block in the life of someone else. My mother was an alcoholic, bless her <laughs> heart. She, she, was, she went to rehab three or four times. And I knew that. And I used to, when I, when I, when I was in my 20s, I'd go over to her house and we'd drink together. And then I got saved and I became aware of this principle. And I went up to her once and I said, mom, I'm not going to the liquor store for you anymore. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to sit down and drink with you anymore. I have a conviction about that in my heart. And I know that if I do that, there is such a thing called, do you know what tacit approval is? That's where I do something and you take it as an interpretation that it's okay, even though you have a problem with it. That's dangerous. And that's what Paul's talking about here. The overarching principle is you better take care with your liberty. You better be sure that you're not stumbling someone else. What if I had a habit of going to the cocktail lounge? I'm a pastor. And you walked in one day. Would you think that that was something that was appropriate? Of course not. It's no different with you. I'm just doing this because God's called me to be the guy that you know, throws the paper into your yard. I didn't write it. I just throw it into your yard. And But folks, we're all in this boat together. And personal responsibility is not just for the pastor. It's for everybody. The point is, is that when it becomes serious, when the attitude of our hearts is such that we're disregarding a brother or sister, that's sin. And he says that here, later on in the text. We walk in liberty. But folks... 
the principle of being considerate to another trumps whatever that liberty is. Verse 4, he says, Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. So what's he saying here? Well, if I line up on one side of an indifferent issue, again, we're talking about indifferent issues. We're talking about adiaphora. Okay? And you line up on another side, at the end of the day, we're both servants of God. Uh, for me to my own master, and for you to your own master, we stand. Because we're not serving each other. We're serving the Lord. We're, I am not your master, nor are you mine, but he is. So he's saying that you can be different. You can have different opinions. You can have different approaches. You can have different tastes. You can understand different things and still come together and both be serving the same God. Super important. If we fail on this, we're going to end up fighting about it. We're going to end up disagreeing about it. We're going to end up with divisions and factions in the church. Because both sides are disputable matters. God is able to make each of us stand in the midst of our walking in liberty. That's how there can be unity in the body of Christ with great diversity. Verse 5, he says, One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, I remember I spent, I don't know, 20 years in a, a little town in Northern California uh, called Calvary Chapel of Gridley was the church I was at. And, and I, I was a billboard painter for many years. Uh, uh, I was serving as one of the assistant pastors there, but I, you know, I was avocation, I was bivocational, I was working all the time and had some businesses and stuff. Anyway, I showed up for work one day. I had a rush job that had to get done that day, but I wanted to go to church. So I dressed up in my painter clothes where people would say, you know, frame that and put it on a wall. Because since I painted billboards, every color in the rainbow was all over my clothes and, and they were caked on there. I mean, there was fluorescent red and, and blue and yellow. I mean, it was, it looked like a piece of art. So I showed up at church in my, in my clothes one day and this lady, Martha, she was a little scandalized that I wasn't dressed for church when I was dressed for church. And then she said, wow, you're dressed interestingly. And I said, yeah, I'm headed off to work as soon as service is over. And she goes, oh, you're working on the Sabbath? And I said, yeah, I guess if that's how you're looking at it. And anyway, I didn't really know how to answer her at that point because I didn't want that to be a stumbling block for her. She regarded Sunday as the Sabbath. Well, and I've heard the stories, guys. I've heard them over the years. Well, you worship Sunday. That's when they worship the sun god. Well, all right, fine. You're worshiping on Saturday. That's when they worship Saturn. So don't, you know, don't go there. I have, I have a friend in Utah that every morning, every morning sends me a text to say good morning. We've been friends for 20 some years. Uh, since they were running a mission base in Mexico that we used to take our church to. And, and on Saturdays, he sends me a text and says, Shabbat Shalom. I am not scandalized by that. You want to know how I answer him? Shabbat Shalom. I am not going to make that an issue to divide with a brother. Yeah, if he got off into weird stuff, that would be something that's a whole different thing. Then you're messing with doctrines that are not up for grabs. But 
He's just simply saying good morning. And he says Shabbat Shalom. No big deal. So the point in this is he says one day, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. You know, there is room in the church for both. If you look at Sunday as a day of rest, if you look at Sunday as your day of Sabbath, and it's true, man has a cycle. We do really well if we take a day off every week. For my wife and I, by the way, I work Sundays. Um, <laughs> and you're glad, right? But the point is, is that you know, my wife and I, we take time off. We don't take, we don't set a particular day because God has called us to serve you. And, and, and I don't, I've never liked the idea that God is closed on Mondays. <laughs> it's like, doesn't make sense. If he's called me to serve you, I want to be available 24-7. Do I get time off? Yeah, I do. But I don't assign a day to that. For others, it's like, nope, this is my day. This is the day I'm going to rest. Great. Have that as your conviction. In, in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer there talks about Israel when they came out of Egypt and God had said, look, I have a land, the promised land for you to come and to walk into, that land represented rest. Now, rest in the Old Testament is a big deal. It's a lot more than just kicking up your feet and relaxing. It's talking about a life. Well, he said that rest was for you. He says, you failed to enter into that rest when they refused to go into the land. Remember, they ended up wandering around for 40 years. He says, today, the, the writer in Hebrews says, today, if you hear his voice, don't fail to enter his rest. Why? Because, folks, we are not called to a Sabbath day. We are called to a Sabbath life. You can make a case for both. My point is, and Paul's point is, you can esteem one day above another. Or you can look at every day as being alike. The main thing is that you're operating from faith. I believe that I have the liberty to have a day of rest when it's on my heart or it's on my schedule. Regardless, the point in this is if placing one day above another is your personal conviction, then do it. If you see in your own mind and in your theology that every day is the same as relates to God and Sabbath rest, then do that. But don't divide with your brother or your sister over it. The point in all of this is to be fully convinced and to have a solid conviction in your own mind. Verse 6, he says, He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. To he who eats, he eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And to he who does not eat, to the Lord, he does not eat. And gives thanks to God, gives God thanks. So do you see where he's going with all of this? That he's essentially saying there's a higher ideal. There is an overarching principle in these things. We have at times vastly different ideas and opinions on these things. And that we do doesn't mean that we have to divide. There's room. It's the same Holy Spirit dwelling in me as is in you. And we can be in agreement because we recognize in God's economy, there's a lot of latitude in areas which are not dealing with morality or immorality or with doctrines that are of major importance to the church. It's, it's a beautiful thing, folks, that, that we can come together. I mean, look around. Well, you don't have to, but you might. 
I said that one time and everybody started looking around and go, wait, no, I, I meant that kind of figuratively. <laughs> but the point is, look around. Look at how different we all are. Look at how many different walks of life. Look at, <laughs> I mean, we are a diverse bunch. Yeah, we're a little church, but we are so different. Do you have room for the differences that other people have? I want to submit to you, God does, so should we. Verse 7, he says, none of us lives to himself. No one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. He's saying we're all in this together. The Lordship of Christ applies to every aspect of a believer's life. As such, (laughs) we're not to live for ourselves, but to live for the Lord. That unifies us. What he's talking about is all this diversity. What, What unifies us? We live to the Lord together. So he writes that no one lives or dies to themselves. Christians aren't meant to exist in a vacuum. We we can't wall ourselves off from the Lord or from other believers. It's a dangerous thing when we do. Whatever we do, we belong to the Lord. That's his point. His teaching in this chapter strongly exhorts us to have strong convictions on certain issues, not to judge those who disagree. If we have a strong conviction, if we have a strong opinion, it's not to us to condemn everybody that doesn't agree with us. There is a strong movement in our culture that if you disagree with the narrative out there, you get condemned. There's no grace in that. There's no forbearance in that. There's no understanding that we're all in process that we're all growing in our relationship with the Lord. And if somebody has been walking with the Lord for a long time, they get certain things that somebody that hasn't been walking with him for a long time doesn't. It's not a point of arrogance. It's a point of having grace. He's clear, however, that Christian liberty is not a license to do whatever we want, however we want. Our choices and our liberties must first be guided by submission to God. Verse 9, he says, For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So now Paul uses some rather poetic language here uh, to show us this is why Christ died for our sins and was resurrected. In doing so, he became the Lord of the living as well as the Lord of those who have died, those who exist in the eternal realm. As we go on here in verse 10, he says, But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat here is not the great white throne that we see at the end of book of Revelation. That's reserved for unbelievers. That's reserved for people whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. And I trust that that's not you. If it is, you can change that today. Give your life to Christ. He's talking about the Bema seat, the Bema judgment. And in that, in the Olympics in the first century, they would run the races, they would do the games. And at the end, the victor would be seated in this place called the Bema seat. And he would be given a, a, a crown of laurel leaves that he was the one who won the race. So he's saying that we're going to all, and he uses the Bema seat as an example, as an illustration for the judgment seat for believers. We're not going to be judged unto death. We're going to be judged for the things that we've done in the body. Uh, That's a whole study. But the point that he's making here is the Bema seat is for us to be presented with a crown. 
the Bible tells us that we'll take that crown and we will throw it right back at the feet of Jesus because it's only through his work that we merited anything in this life. He says in verse 10, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So on the one hand, it'd be foolish for the weaker Jewish Christian to evaluate and condemn a brother who doesn't keep Jewish laws, doesn't keep the Sabbath day, doesn't limit himself to certain foods. On the other hand, it's wrong for the stronger brother to show contempt for the weaker. He said, on either side, you have, if you're not walking in grace, if you're not walking in the higher principles that are presented here, you're not walking in love. The point in this is that every one of us is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and that will be the only evaluation that counts. So he's saying, you know what? You're evaluating one another, but the evaluation that we get at the end of the age is the one that will stand. Verse 11, he says, for it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So here he quotes Isaiah 45 as he once again elevates any argument over our differences and stating that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, regardless of which side of an issue one stands upon. Isn't it wonderful that you can have your opinion? I can have mine. And regardless, we'll both stand before our common king one day. I am so grateful. We're not going to get there. Hey, what did you think about sprinkling? I don't know. What did you think about dunking? People divide over that. I told my church one time, I will baptize you with a squirt gun. (laughs) Of course, it was, I never had anybody take me up on it. And I would have been kind of weirded out if that was the case. You know, get my monster blaster or whatever. But my point was that we can divide over these things and we can get serious. We can get, we can get offended. Look at that church. Look at what they're doing. It's like, wait, he says, wait, there's, there's room. Do I believe that water baptism is a thing? Yeah, of course I do. The, 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 the language in the New Testament talks about immersion. So we immerse. I had a friend, when, right after I got saved, I was kind of scandalized because he said, yeah, I was just like reading my Bible. I was in the tub one day and I thought, wow, I need to be baptized. So I baptized myself in the tub. And I'm thinking, okay, I don't, I don't even like the visual on that. It's just like, this is weird. But I learned not to divide with people over things like that. Verse 12, he says, so each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let's face it, folks. We often judge one another too much and without the property author- proper authority or without, the, without adequate knowledge. It's important to remember that I will not give an account for you. <laughs> Praise God. Nor will you give an account for me. Each of us will stand before God on our own and each of us will give an account. That's what he's saying. As we understand these things and we apply them to our lives, where's boasting? Where are the divisions between us? Where's arguing, striving? Verse 13, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. That's the overarching principle. Principle is you can believe on this way, this thing, this way. You can believe on that thing, that way. But wait, 
there is a principle that governs that. Don't put a stumbling block in somebody else's way. A stumbling block in this case is something that grieves, something about us that grieves a weaker brother. That their, their conscience is offended. They're grieved. Now he also says a cause to fall. And that's what we may freely do, but which another in so doing may act against his own conscience and therefore sin. I've stumbled that person. Something I, as I was looking at this, I, I just brought it brought to mind. You know what? Peer pressure does this. I I I, I raised kids. <laughs> I'm telling you, the peer pressure is enormous to conform because it's cool. If you name the name of Christ, it's not cool. It can cause you to fall. Literally, this word means a snare or a trap. So instead of sitting in judgment of our fellow Christians in these matters of moral indifference, our hearts should always be that we resolve not to do anything to hinder a brother or a sister in their spiritual progress. That's the loving thing to do. It's the kind thing to do. It's consistent with the fruit of God's spirit manifesting in our lives. Anything less looking for trouble. The point is that none of these non-essential matters is important enough for us to cause somebody to stumble or to fall. I'm, I'm, that's my liberty. That's it. I don't care what you think. That is not a good attitude. That is not a Christ honoring attitude. Verse 14, he says, I know, and I'm convinced by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean in and of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him, it's unclean. Why? (laughs) Yeah. When I read this, I have to wonder if the Apostle Paul occasionally, it's like he looks around and then he orders pork chops. I mean, he was a good Jewish boy, but he also came to understand this liberty. And, you know, yeah, of course, he's writing this. And and so you have to think that he is taking great care with whatever liberty he has. In First, uh, First Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, we're told that the food that we eat is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. So now he sharpens it up with another overarching principle uh, that he's putting forth. These things are a matter of conscience, and they have always been a matter of conscience. If I'm okay with doing a thing, great. If I'm not okay with doing a thing, great. When it becomes not okay is when my conscience is offended and I press forward with that thing anyway. Then it's sin. This is the mark. Furthermore, if I know someone else that has an issue with something that I don't have a particular conviction over, guess which one of us carries the burden of responsibility for that? Verse 15. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Don't destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Well, I'm not worried about meat that's been sacrificed at a pagan temple. And man, I'm just going to power it down. And I'm going to let everybody, I got this meat at a pagan temple. I want you to know I have freedom in Christ. That's not walking in love. You see the bigger picture though. What he's bringing us in this chapter. Yeah, we, we can be secure in the liberties that we have. However, with freedom comes responsibility And in this case, that responsibility must be exercised in giving consideration to others. Notice in all of this, he addresses the person who has issues with food or with Sabbath days and so on as the weaker brother. 
Now, in our flesh, we might look at that and think, well, you know, he's the weak one here, so he'll have to just deal with it. It's not how it works in God's economy. That might work in our culture. There's equal responsibility, as I mentioned earlier, distributed to both the weaker and the stronger brothers. He's telling the weaker brother to not get all jacked up about the stronger brother's liberty. He's telling the stronger brother to put consideration of the weaker brother ahead of his liberty. Folks, when we walk in both of these, we experience harmony in the relationships around us, even though we have significant differences between us. As we apply God's word to our lives from this chapter, from these verses, we do well. In verses 16 to 18, we read this. He says, therefore, don't let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. So he talks about two things. He's acceptable to God and approved by men. That's somebody who understands and is applying and walking out the things we're talking about here. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul cautions about thinking the kingdom is about eating and drinking and Sabbath days and so on. Colossians 2.16, the Apostle Paul wrote, he says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge with regard to food or drink or respect or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. It's not for other people to decide, is what he's saying. These things, are, which are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Dropping down into verse 20, he says, If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? These are all things which are destined to perish with use. He says, you're doing these in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which do not have, do have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and humility and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. His point in all of that is don't let somebody tie you up and impose those convictions that they may have on you. It's wrong. If I have a strong conviction that I'm not going to eat certain foods, then I need to keep that to myself, nor am I in a place where I want to impose that on other people. He says, keep your liberties aligned with God's will. On top of that, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, as he says here, they will never come through external pursuits. He says, this looks like wisdom, but it's self-made religion. It looks like humility, but it's pride. There's no value there. Verse 19, he says, therefore, there's that word again, therefore, on account of these things, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Build up. That's what the word edify means. This, when you talk about an edifice, you're talking about a building. So the things that we look at that are going to edify somebody else are going to, things that will build someone up. And what he's saying here is our corporate life in the body of Christ has greater value than the exercise of our personal freedoms. Someone told me once about a church, and maybe it was this church, an earlier group, that had a wine bar. I remember looking at a, a guy, a, kind of a hip church in Seattle years ago, and the guy was there tossing back a, a, a 20-ounce beer as he was teaching. 
Folks, when we look at freedom in the body of Christ, and I'm not going to make a doctrine out of alcohol. I will tell you that millions of lives, including my family's, have been wrecked by it. The Bible doesn't say don't drink. It says don't get drunk. But it also is very, very clear that you take care with your liberty. It's an external, but it needs to be guided by the internals. The things we do need to be guided by our understanding of how the body of Christ functions and how it doesn't. It's not about the church getting out there and looking like the world. Oh, look at our liberty. That's not it. We're not to mimic our culture. We're not to, the, 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 we're, we're to, we're to speak into our culture for sure, but not to look like it. That's not liberty. That's license. I believe it's wrong. He speaks in verse 19 about building one another up. In verse 20, Paul uses some very strong language with regard to the opposite. He talks about tearing someone down with our liberties. In verses 20 to 23, Paul reiterates and applies the things he's been talking about through this chapter. So we're not going to spend a lot of time there because he is essentially coming back and reiterating it. And I'll tell you what, God doesn't waste words. This was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So when he says it a couple of times, it's important. Verse 20 says, don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food or anything else could be implied there. In this case, like I said, the Jewish Christians in Rome, it was food. For us, I'm talking about different things. He says, all things are indeed pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. This is a word for the weaker brother. If it bothers you, what he's saying here is if it bothers you, don't do it. Verse 21, it's good neither to eat meat nor to drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. This is a word for the stronger brother. If you know it's going to bother someone else, don't do it. Very practical. Verse 22 and 23, he says, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. Going back to the Sabbath days thing. My friend believes in, 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 in Shabbat Shalom. That's fine. That's what he believes. I don't believe that. Am I going to get all twisted out of shape about it? No. I know he loves the Lord. He's operating from faith. I'm operating from faith and not believing that and, and going a different direction. Every day is the same. If you're operating from faith that Sunday is the Sabbath, then good for you. You'll never have me argue with you about that. Now, we, we already taught through Hebrews and talked about having a Sabbath life. That's fine too. His point in all of this is that whatever is not from faith is sin. If there's something that you hold that is an indifferent thing and you trust that that's something that you're okay with God about, fine. That's a word for both. If you have faith to not partake of a thing, have it to yourself. If you have faith to partake of a thing, have it to yourself. Let your personal convictions be just that. Personal. So, What is meant by having it to yourself? What does he mean in that? And folks, I'm going to go into interpretation here, but I'm going to give you some pastoral advice. Keep your liberties at home. I've been stumbled before, and I don't want to stumble somebody else. 
You don't have to advertise your liberties. That is risky business. We're seeing here that you can sin in doing that. And you never know when you're going to put a stumbling block in another's way. Serious stuff. The second thing about that is be sure that you're operating from faith. And I want to just interject something here. If your so-called liberty is something that you need to rationalize, it very well may be sin. People rationalize all kinds of things. I've heard, well, it's legal. So, so, abortion's legal. I've heard, well, you know, it's the same as alcohol. So, the Bible calls, well, we looked at it last week. We looked at methe, the substances that we put into our bodies that alter our consciousness and conquer our will are not okay. Calls it sorcery. The Greek word is pharmakeia. It's where we get the word pharmaceuticals. So be sure that you're operating from faith. And if your so-called liberty is something you need to rationalize, strongly advise, take it to the Lord. I want to close with a word from Paul's letter to the church, the churches in Galatia. It was a region in Asia Minor. From Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. And this, you know, I, I saved this for last. It, it was actually first on my mind as I began to crack this open and, and to look at Romans 14. But I thought, you know what? That's just a great word for us to leave with this morning. The Apostle Paul was dealing with some bad people. <laughs> the, the letter that he wrote to the churches in Galatia is the hottest letter in all of the New Testament. He is hopping mad. And for good reason. These guys were chasing him around and saying, oh, well, you know, they were called Judaizers. Yeah, you know, the grace of God's fine. Sure, yeah, that's fine. But you really do need to live by the law of Moses. He's going, no, you do not. He says, you're free. You've been called to freedom. You're you're not to be subjected to the law of Moses and and the 613 laws that are there. Foolishness for a Christian. We don't live by a list. We live by love. He says in Galatians 5.13, he says, For you, brothers, brethren, sistren, (laughs) I added that. (laughs) He says, you've been called to liberty. You've been called called to liberty. Get that. You've been called to liberty. Not it's allowed, but it's right in front of you. He says, but... Don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. It's all summed up there. He has the principle, then he has the overarching principle, and then he has what the external is, and then he talks about the motive of the heart. It's all right here in this verse. The principle is you're you're free. The overarching principle, don't use it if it's going to mess with somebody else. And don't use it if it's going to mess with you. The motive, love. If you're walking in love, you're not going to do that. What's the outcome? Serving one another. Because I love you, I'm going to have my liberty to myself. And no, I'm not sitting at home tossing back a bottle of wine. I would never want to be called to go on a, 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 hey, pastor, come and pray for my family. We're at the emergency room. How are you doing? No, 
No, no, and no. Because I want to serve you. Because I love you. And as long as God has called Stacy and I to this church, we're going to walk in love. And we're going to be respectful of your liberties. And we're not going to do things that are going to put a stumbling block in your way. Have that attitude. It's one that honors Christ. And it's one that loves other people. Let's pray. Father, uh, just uh, just going through this chapter, <laughs> remarkable for me to get through a whole chapter in the morning. Lord, this is so much practical advice here. There's so much wisdom in this. There is so much insight and instruction. I pray, Father, that people will be inspired to take these words, to go home and study this out for themselves and that you would continue to speak. I know you're speaking to those people's hearts this morning, to each of us. I pray that would continue, Lord, as we take your word to heart, as we apply your word to our lives. And for those either here or perhaps online that don't know you, that are peering into these things, curious, Lord, I pray that you get a hold of their hearts, that they would turn from their sin, turn from the old life and embrace you. Oh, so much better way to live than the futility that this world continuously serves up. Lord, thank you for liberty, that you've called us to liberty. Lord, let us use our liberty. Let us use those things wisely. Always honoring you, always serving one another. We give ourselves afresh to you. In Jesus' name, amen.